You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Thank the Lord I made it back. I'm here. The week wasn't near as bad as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and uh, happy Father's Day to all you fathers. I wanted to read something to you. A good father is one of the most unsung, unpraised, unnoticed, and yet one of the most valuable assets in our society. You know who said that? Billy Graham. So happy Father's Day to all you men and all of you grandfathers. Double that. Uh, it's a good day to be in God's house, amen? Uh, I, I'd love to give you a report, but in all honesty, you know, um, let's just go to the Word of God. It was a good week. It was a fine week. God is sovereign. I'm going to do something before I get started because I've got several things on my mind. Uh, the Moldova team we need to pray for. They all arrived. They're safe. They're doing medical clinics from what I understand, uh, so we need to pray for them. Uh, let me ask you to pray for one or two other folks specifically. One, pray for Susan uh, Jovanovich, if you would. Uh, she has three appointments this week, uh, PET scan, MRI, and then to meet with an oncologist. Uh, let's keep uh, Susan in our prayer and um, Hannah Blankenship. Uh, keep Hannah in your prayers as well. Father, just before we open your word, we can't pray too often or too much. We come back to your throne and appeal, Lord, for those that need our prayers. I do pray for the Moldova team, Lord, that you would watch over them, that you would be with them, that you would empower them, that you would give them strength to do what you have called them there to do. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being part of a church that is now consistently sending teams out to various places we pray for all the work of God's people today, and especially those that uh, we're close to and that we support. We ask your blessing on all of these. Father, I do pray for Susan and lift her up to you as well as Hannah, and believe you to be the God of great mercy, a tender God, a, a tender God and a God that is our shepherd. And I pray now for all of those requests that are being made on the hearts of people sitting here, Father, that are calling out names to you. And we're so thankful, Lord, that uh, you hear each request and each prayer as if it were the only one. And now as we turn to your word, uh, Lord, calm our hearts, give us presence of mind to listen to your word, shut out any disturbance or distraction and we pray, Father, that we would be the wiser for having been here this morning. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start out in Matthew. If you would take your copy of God's Word, I'm going to get to Exodus in just a few minutes. But let me start out with reminding you of something in Matthew chapter 13. Do you remember Jesus telling the story 
of the parable, telling the parable of the soils. And uh, Jesus told the parable of the soils. You remember that. You may not remember every element, but you remember the heart of all of that. Well, uh, you, you get to that in, I'm sorry, Matthew 13, you get to that. And uh, the disciples come to Jesus, and it's an interesting thing. They come and they ask Jesus, why do you teach in parables? And they're basically saying, we don't catch what you're saying. We, we don't get what you're saying. Well, Jesus explains the parable to them. And the one thing that I want you to see is in Matthew 13, 19, when Jesus says, he, he's describing this, explaining to them each of the elements, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, now who is the evil one? Satan. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Now, the interesting thing about that is this. Whenever there is a sowing of the word of God, that is the preaching of the gospel, wherever there is the preaching of the gospel, um, Satan is always working. To do what? What did Jesus just say? To snatch away the seed. He wants to grab it, snatch it away, pull it out of the heart, get your minds occupied with something else. I've shared with you before from C.S. Lewis over and over in his screw tape letters. Uh, when, when the agent, when the, when the guy goes to church, uh, screw tape, the, the head demon in charge of his nephew, Wormwood, he writes him and he says, now listen, when he comes out of there, you do everything in, in your power to get his mind on the world, to distract him with all kind of things. Why, why the world is the way it is. Why things happen the way they happen. Throw all this stuff into his mind. Why? So that he will not deal with all of the convicting thoughts that the word of God brings. So what he's saying is, steal that word from him. Now, Jesus tells us when you get over to Matthew chapter 24, that Satan's activity is going to be heightened in that age just prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, I happen to believe we're living in those days. And Jesus comes and he says, listen, unless those days had been cut short, this is Matthew 24, 22, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus is basically saying this, that Satan's work, his activity, is going to be at such a fevered pitch that even the elect are going to be deceived. Now, I want you say, well, why are you telling us? Because I want you to keep that in your mind. As we go now back to Exodus chapter 32. Folks, let me tell you something. The Word of God all connects. Every bit of it connects. It uh, blends right in. It meshes together. Now we go back to Genesis, uh, Exodus chapter 32. Now, we have gone through the book of the covenant. Uh, I didn't preach through every law. You can thank the Lord for that. And uh, I did not preach through the whole of that covenant, but we gave you the gist of all of that. If you were here on the Wednesday nights, we went through all of the Ten Commandments, each one of those. It gives you a flavor of the law. We've looked at that. We're leaving now 
that law when, when Moses was going to receive it from the hand of God. Back in chapter 24, he's going up the mountain. God's called him up. He says, you come up here. I'm going to give you the law on tablets of stone that have been written by my finger. So Moses is going to go up on the mountain to receive all of the rest of the law, the ceremonial law, the civil law, as well as the Decalogue, the 10, the, the Hebrews will call it the 10 words, which are the 10 commandments. Uh, he's going to receive that on stone. So now uh, we come to where Moses is there on the mountain just before he comes back down. In chapter 32, and what you're coming to find and discover is this. You're going to discover that uh, Satan always lurks about. He's always there to snatch away from your life what God has done. All you have to do is go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And in Genesis 1 and 2, people ask about that. It's, it's a type of literature. It's called Hebrew parallelism. The Hebrews would write something one way, and then they would come back and write it a second, second way. And they would give a little bit of a different look at it, a little different flavor. And you take the two and you put them together, and you have a better understanding. Much of that happens in the Proverbs. Solomon will state a proverb this way, then he comes back and he states it yet another way. Well, that's the way the Hebrews wrote. And it is immediately after God now creates woman, brings woman to the man, uh, to the man, and God spends time with them that you come to chapter three and immediately Satan now has entered the garden. He's entered paradise. He doesn't leave much time there. Wherever God's been working, Satan comes and he's gonna begin to work as well. And you know the outcome. Same thing happens with Noah. Just as soon as God delivers them through the flood, his family, Noah and his family exit the ark. He plants a vineyard. He makes wine. He gets drunk. And you've got that whole ugly affair that occurs back there in Genesis. Satan shows up immediately after the deliverance of God. You've got the same thing with Lot. You've got the same thing with Lot and his family. God comes down or sends angels down to get them. And, and the angels are ready to drag them out of the city. And uh, they are, go out of the city. Of course, his wife turns around, looks back at the city, becomes a salt lick for a cow. And, um, and, uh, and uh, Lot and his daughters go on and they are delivered. God delivers them. And immediately after that event, you have got the immorality of the daughters of Lot. Uh, they only do what they have seen and uh, have been immersed in as they lived in the culture of Sodom. But Satan comes immediately after a deliverance. And that's what you're going to see here. God has now delivered them, brought them to himself. The amazing thing is this, is we're going to look at six verses after 14 chapters of God's grace, beginning back in verse 18, where Jethro is converted. Do you remember that sermon? Do y'all remember? Okay. You remember back how he's converted? He's a Midianite priest, and yet he comes and he says, listen, there's no other God but Jehovah. And so you've got about 14 chapters of the grace and the goodness and the teaching and the word and the law of God, and now you're going to come to six verses. They're not going to undo the grace of God, but they are going to cast a dark shadow over the Hebrews. Now, what you have 
is you have these Hebrews sitting at the bottom of that mountain while Moses is up on the mountain with God in the midst of his glory. And Satan is gonna come in these six verses. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. Satan will come and Satan cannot to the child of God, to the person who is born again, to the person who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior, he cannot snatch away your salvation, but he can rob you of your joy, of your victory. He can rob you of the satisfaction of living for God. He can rob you of fellowship. He can rob you of unity. He can rob you of uh, the harmony that goes on in a home where Christ rules, in a church where Christ rules. He can come and rob you of your security but he cannot seize or snatch away your salvation. Now, I want you to understand that because these are God's people. They have entered into covenant with God. And yet here in this chapter, in these first six verses, you're going to see the activity of Satan when people move in covenant relationship with God. So let's begin now, and let me begin to show you all of this as we come to chapter 32 of Exodus and verse 1. And the first thing I want you to see is this, is Satan's occupation of deception. He is a master of deception. He is one who comes and he deceives us, and Satan is written all over these first verses that are here. Really, over a lot of this chapter, you see Satan written in. He comes, and we if we don't stop and look at this, let me tell you, we are often impervious to, to the activity, the movement of Satan, but I want you to watch him in the midst of all that's taking place. So how does he come? How does he come and rob us of all of this peace, the relationship, or the, or the not the relationship, but the... Uh, the, the, the harmony between us and God. He drives a wedge in that relationship. How does he do it? Let me show you three things. He comes and he uses doubt. Now, I find this in the very first part of verse one. When the people saw that Moses delayed. Now, do you see that right there, the word delayed? Let me just stop since we can and ask you, anybody have a different word there than, the, than delayed? I want y'all to do a little bit of study this morning. What's the word there in your copy of God's word? So long, he's so long, delayed. Do you know what the Hebrew word actually is? It's embarrassed. Uh, shamed, embarrassed. Now, have you ever been late to something and you were embarrassed about it? Anything but church, right? Um, you've been late to something, to a party, to a dinner, something like that. You walk in, you're just, oh, I'm, I'm a, you know, I dare not not go, but I'm so embarrassed that I'm late and I've got to walk in like this. It's a concept here. Let me tell you, I wrestled with this uh, this week thinking uh, what in the world is being said here. And I cannot tell you which one, but it really doesn't make any difference. Is it that the people think that Moses should be ashamed and embarrassed because he's delayed. 
that he hasn't come. He's not been good to them because he has been so long up on the mountain and he has delayed his coming back down to them. And he said to them, I will be back. Remember, he tells them that I'm coming back. I'll be back. But he's been so long there that he should be ashamed and embarrassed of himself for coming back so late. Or is it that these Hebrews feel like they should be ashamed and embarrassed for waiting so long on Moses to come before they do something? Well, it really doesn't make any difference. I just, I just wanted you to see that. I just want you to think about that because there is a sense in this, in this word that there is a shame and embarrassment about this delay. That's how they took it, either on Moses' part or their part, or I suspect it's probably a little bit of both. The Hebrew word there is bush, bush, Moses, booshed. <laughs> uh, you would think it was whooshed that he came right back down, but he did not. It's booshed. He delayed to come down from the mountain, and in the midst of that, what happened was this, Satan begins to th- to sow into the thinking of these Hebrews doubt. Just this doubt. Well, he's not going to come back at all. He had no intentions of ever coming back. This was not impatience on their part. Let me tell you the way these Hebrews felt. Well, he's not coming back. Uh, He's not been interested in us. We feel like we have been abandoned by God and by Moses. The sense of abandonment goes deep. It cuts deep into a person's life. If you've ever been abandoned by a parent, by a father, by a mother, if you've ever been abandoned by somebody that you love deeply, I don't know if you remember ever reading uh, Great Expectations by Dickens, but Miss Haversham, you remember, was to be married, but he jilted her at the altar, and everything was set, and the time struck on the clock, and her to be her intended to be, never showed. He abandoned her. She lived the rest of her life really out of her mind. Uh, Abandonment can do that to a person. When somebody feels that they've been abandoned and if you feel as if, have you ever felt like God has, now just be honest with me. Have you ever felt like in a situation, God has abandoned me? And I'm gonna tell you something in all honesty. I have felt that way before. And I've asked God, God, where are you? Why are you not here? Why have you left me? Why have you abandoned? I feel your way. And the only thing you can do in a moment like that is to do this. Go back to the word of God and read what he's told you. It's the only thing that ever helped me is to go back and remind myself, it's not my feelings, it's not my emotions, it's what I know God has said in his word. I may feel abandoned, God is not abandoned. Satan will come in moments and he will sow doubt into your mind and he will make you think God has abandoned you. Well, let me show you the second thing and the second thing here is this. Uh, He's going to come and he is also going to sow deceit, lies. Never forget that Satan is the father of lies. 
Now, let me, let me just read this first verse. Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. The people assembled about Aaron, said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this, moment, uh, as for this Moses, the man who's brought us up from the land of Egypt. Now, listen to what he does. He's throwing this deceit in there. We do not know what has become of him. We don't know where he is. We don't know what's happened to him. He's been gone a lot longer than we thought he would be gone, and uh, yet we, we don't have a clue as to what's going on with him or what's going on with God, and Satan has sown deceit into their minds so that they believe they, they don't have a clue where he is. Now, let me show you something. Put your finger right there in Exodus chapter 32. Go back with me, if you would, to chapter 24. That's where we were last week. And I want you to remember now what God, uh, what God has said and what, God, and what these Hebrews saw. Back to Exodus chapter 24. And let me pick it up with verse 15. Then Moses went up the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eye, listen, and to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses entered the midst of the cloud. They knew exactly where he was. It's not like he'd gotten a car or a plane and gone to Vegas. All they had to do, listen, all they had to do was lift their eyes and look to the mountaintop and they could see the presence of God still there. And yet Satan comes and in his sowing deceit into our minds, we begin to doubt all kind of stuff and we don't believe the truth that God has told us. We don't, we, they wouldn't even believe it when it was right there in front of their very eyes. How often do we say, well, if I could just see it. Well, my stars, they saw it and didn't believe it. So he comes and he sows that doubt and he sows that deceit. But there's a third thing that he does he comes and he's going to sow in denial. They're going to live in this state of denial. They're going to deny what God has done. Right there in the middle of verse one, look at what it says. And they said to Aaron, come, make us a God who will go before us. For, for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. Do you see that? For Moses, this man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Do you see what's being said right there? There's a lack of gratitude at all for what God's done. Do you remember what God said back in chapter 20, verse 1 and 2? Then God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God. Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? It wasn't Moses who brought them up. God's made it clear. Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage? It was Yahweh, Jehovah, Jehovah, the Lord God. And so yet they're going to live here in the midst of this denial. They're going to deny all the things that God had done, how God had brought them out, how God had brought them through the Red Sea, how God had brought them through days of hunger and through periods of thirst. And he's now brought them to the mountain where he's revealed his presence to them. And all they had to do was just lift up their eyes and be reminded that God is still here. 
And yet Satan comes, and what does he do? He sows in this denial. God really hasn't done any of this. Let's attribute it to Moses. You know, that may be why when Moses gets to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, I may have told you this before, but um, the book of Deuteronomy, many uh, theologians who are who have a degree in preaching, believe that Deuteronomy is a sermon. Uh, they think it's a sermon that Moses preached. And so they, they come and they say, in the book of Deuteronomy, 15 times Moses, in that sermon, if it's a sermon, 15 times he says, remember, remember, remember. That, that's just three. But can you imagine in a sermon me telling you something 15 times? you'd start pulling your hair out. Uh, he comes six times and he says, do not forget, 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 do not forget. Remember, you remember who it is that brought you up out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Don't live in, in, the, in, the, in the light of these denials that it all just happened. So he comes and he tells them, you remember, do not forget. Now that's the occupation of Satan. That's Satan's activity. That's his occupation. He comes to deceive. He is the father of all lies. Now let me show you the second thing. And the second thing is this, Aaron's compromising concession. He compromises here. He concedes. And it's kind of amazing to me. Uh, that he does this. Now put your finger right here in chapter 32. Go back to chapter 24 again. In fact, just keep your finger in chapter 24 for just a little bit, for the rest of the sermon. Uh, just keep your finger there. Let me, let me tell you, do you remember when Moses arose with Joshua? Chapter 24, verse 13, Moses went up to the mountain of God, but to the elders he said, now wait here for us. He turns around to the elders. He says, you wait here for us to return to you. I'm coming back. And behold, Aaron and her are here with you. Whoever has a legal matter, you go to them. You go to these elders. You approach them. You got an issue. While I'm gone, you go see these elders. Aaron and her. Now, let me tell you something here. This is the last time you're going to see her. You won't hear out of her again. Now, there will be mentions of the sons of her of his sons, there will be mention of several other hers in the Old Testament, but this her who helped hold up the arms of Moses, he's not going to be heard from again. You're not gonna hear from him again. But, but let, me, let me just show you something here. Here is a, a, a principle, honestly. Do you remember, as Moses sets apart Aaron and her and says, now they're here to care for you. Do you remember when Jesus sends out the disciples, how he sends them out? Why? All that you've just said, every bit of what you just said, uh, to hold up each other's hands, accountability, um, to be there for one another, to help one another. Do you know that's why God puts us in husband-wife relationship? You ever thought about that? You ever thought about that's why God puts us in relationships here in this church, in this body, that he's brought people into this church, into this body that you are to build relationship with because you know what the Bible says? Two 
Solomon says this, two are better than one. You come and you read in the book of Deuteronomy where Moses is going to say, if one can put a thousand to flight, two can put 10,000 to flight. We're much better together in teams. We're much better together as a group of folks than we are by ourselves. When you get alone, you can expect the attack of Satan. Now, that's how I'm going to close this message, but just keep that in mind. Um, Her was not there for Aaron. He was not there to say, hey, 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 Aaron, you better wait on that. You better think about that. Um, I'd hate to be here when your brother shows back up. Um, you, you don't want God coming down on you, but I want you to notice what happens here. Look at this, back over, keep your finger there in chapter 24, and uh, get back over here to chapter 32 of uh, Exodus, and l- listen to what happens in verse 2. Aaron said to them, there is no discourse, no hesitation, no remonstration, no confrontation at all. He simply said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Take them off. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in the ears, in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. What in the world is Aaron doing? What's going on here with Aaron? Well, Aaron is down in the valley, folks. Let me tell you, he's down there in the valley and he is empowering these people to break God's commandments. In fact, let me just stop right there and show you what two commandments they're gonna break. Go back over to chapter 20 and you see it right off in this covenant, just as, begun, just as God begins this covenant and he comes with his commandments in verse three and verse four, you shall have no other gods before me. They're fixing to break that. And here's the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Because what is making that idol going to lead to? Look at verse five, you shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. He says, listen, here are the first two things I give you in this covenant, and the people agreed to it. They are the very first two things to go in what Satan has stirred them up to do. And Aaron, while Aaron is down there in the valley doing that, God and Moses are up on top of the mountain and God is telling Moses, now let me tell you about your brother Aaron. He's going to be the high priest. And I'm going to tell you what he's to wear and I'm going to tell you what he's to put on and I'm going to tell you what he's to do. And while God is giving his plan for Aaron's life, Aaron is living out his plan in the valley. Where are you living right now? Well, I give the invitation right there, but I ain't going to do it. Where are you living right now? Are you living off of your plan down in the valley? Or are you living off the plan God has given for your life up on the mountain? That's a sermon. I'll just bypass. I'm just throwing a point out at you. There it is right there. So he just kind of ignores that and he goes and he does what he's going to do. Now, all the people come to Aaron And they say, we want you to build us a God. And Aaron does that. He does that. He concedes 
he compromises, he gives in, he bends, he buckles, he kind of throws in the towel. He compromises. Now, I want you to listen to me carefully. You compromise the first time, and the second time will be much easier. Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12, you're going to see this again. Who do you think? You know what? All I can think of, and I, I'm sorry. I, let, me, let me just apologize. I'm sorry that I use Andy Griffith illustrations. You remember when the lady speeder came through town and she gave Barney a big head about looking like Frank Sinatra and she gave Floyd the big head saying, oh, you've got the touch to fix hair. And she gave Opie a baseball signed by all the New York Yankees. And her court case, course, her, her court case is thrown out and uh, Andy looks over and he says, you've done a great day's work. You've outwitted justice. You've made a mockery of this court. And you've turned three people against me that I thought would never leave my side. Who would you say that you would think would never leave the side of Moses but his brother Aaron? Aaron. And you're going to see him compromise yet again. He's going to get to Numbers chapter 12 and listen to verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he, whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord, here's, here's, here's the drum roll. And the Lord heard it. The first time, the whole nation got him to compromise. The second time, all it took was one person, his sister. When you begin to compromise, brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. The second time is much easier. Doesn't take near as much to get you to compromise. The third time, you're a pushover. And it's downhill from there. Let me give you the third thing, and the third thing is this. I want you to see the Hebrews' repudiation, how they repudiate God, which is unbelievable. So if you're there, I'm going back up to verse 1. All of this just crammed just about into one verse. Look at this. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, "'Come make us a god.'" Now, I'm going to stop with that. I want you to look at the noun right there. Is it singular or plural in your Bible? All right, now, those of you that have a plural of the noun there, what are you reading? The King James? NIV? The King James? ESV? NASV? Okay. Everything that's ever been... Translated. Okay, I got, I got it. it. It is plural. And let me, just, let me just do a little teaching today because I'm doing more of that than anything else. Whenever you come across the word Elohim, God, the oldest name of God, it is, it is the God. When it's used with a definite article, it is always singular in the Hebrew. When it does not have the definite article, 
It means gods, plural. It's the word that was used for all of these gods. I, I had the privilege for seven years pastoring uh, Dr. Eugene Merrill, who was the world's foremost um, expert in uh, Hebrew, honestly, in Semitic languages. He wrote the classic work, The Kingdom of Priests, on the Old Testament. And Dr. Merrill comes to this and he says of this passage, this is proof that the people have rejected the monotheism of Jehovah and have gone back and embraced the polytheism of Egypt. When they say to God back in chapter 24, we will obey you. We are willing to follow this covenant and obey you. They say that. What did Jesus say? The people say this with their lips but their heart is far from me. Their heart was still influenced by Egypt, even though with their mouth they made a commitment to the Lord. So they have gone back and they said, don't make us a God, make us gods in the plural. We want this pantheon of gods who will go before us. We want him to lead us. Now, let me, let me just quickly get on to the end of this. He took this from their hand, I'm in verse four, and he fashioned it with a graving tool. There are four major gods of Egypt uh, that resemble the cow. Uh, the first one is Hathor. There's Hathor right there. There's Hathor. Uh, you see, she's got horns right there. I dated her in high school. Uh, she has horns. Um, the second one is Isis. Isis is the goddess of all God. You see, they've got her with horns as well. She's a, she's a symbol of a, of a number of things. Miwar is the third who is the calf that is golden. You see uh, Miwar right there. And there is Apis. There is Apis. He was uh, the fellow God with Ra. Ra was the sun God. This was only for the elite of Egypt to see. You could only see him. It was an actual cow that they would do all of this to. And uh, you could only see him if you were part of the upper echelon. You could see him through a window at a distance. And when that cow died, they treated him like a pharaoh. They would mummify him and bury him in a tomb. This is what Aaron made. We are almost convinced that he made Apis there. And uh, he did it with this tool that he had. He had a great ability, evidently, that God had given him. I'd love to preach on, are you using your abilities uh, for God's kingdom and not man's kingdom? Uh, and he uses his ability here to fashion with a graving tool. He made it into a molten calf and said, and they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow, look at the text now, shall be the feast of the, look at this. What does it say? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. What is that? Yahweh. The covenant name God gave to Moses at the burning bush. And now Aaron comes, the guy who is going to be the chief priest. You talk about the grace of God. Here he comes and he uses the name of God and he puts it on that calf. His work. So many times we will make things with our hands 
and slap the name of God on it as if God will then have to make what we've done successful because we put his name on it. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So long as we act like Jesus Christ is Lord. But a building doesn't mean anything. Not a thing. So Aaron does that. And the next day they rose early, burned offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink. And the old interpretation of this, and they rose up to play, which means they rose up into sexual immorality. Do you remember, was it last week or some weeks ago, some weeks ago when I told you when God told them how to make an altar, if you make an altar of stone for me, will not be built out of uh, cut stone. He said to them, and don't go up by the way of steps to my altar so that your nakedness will not be exposed. And I shared with you, uh, that most of the Canaanite world and most of the Egyptian world would worship at altars without any clothes on because part of their worship was this orgy of immorality, Israel, the Hebrews, at the base of the mountain with the presence of God right up above them. Let me give you now, are y'all Okay. I'm going to give you five things that'll help you understand when Satan comes to attack. That's all I've seen in this passage is Satan here. And so let me begin to just give you some important things that you need to look for. Number one, first of all, Satan attacks you when you're vulnerable. Now, you're vulnerable when you're tired. At least when you get old, you are. <laughs> Um, you're vulnerable um, when, you're, when you're exhausted, when you're tired, when you're weary, when you've been on the road, when you've been traveling, when you've been working, all, all of this, you're vulnerable at those times. These Hebrews were very vulnerable. They were out in this wilderness. They were out in this desert. Um, they were out in very high temperatures. I've been in that part of the world um, with extremely high temperatures before, like 128 I think it was, and uh, you have no energy, and when you are physically worn out, you are emotionally frayed. And into this state, these people right here have come, and so they are vulnerable to Satan sowing into their mind this deceit and this denial and this doubt. You need to be able to read yourself, folks, it takes a while in life to do it. I've come finally to the place where I know that I, where I've got to sit down and I've got to just take a little bit of a break uh, in, in, during the course of a day. You watch yourself because when you don't, you open yourself up, you become vulnerable to the devil. Number two, Satan always is working to separate you from God. The ultimate thing of Satan is this. He hates God and when he looks at you, he sees the image of God and he hates you. Make no mistake about it. Satan is not your friend. He hates you. And if you know Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and you're redeemed, you look now like Jesus Christ. You've been wrapped up in his righteousness. 
So he doubly hates your life and he wants to drive a wedge between you and your relationship and your fellowship with the Father. Number three, you're most susceptible to Satan's attack when you are upset. The devil loves to come in those moments when you are frustrated and attacks you. You get frustrated at work. You get frustrated with a boss. You get frustrated with an employee. You get frustrated with a child. You get frustrated with a situation, a committee that you're, whatever it is, you get frustrated. You're on edge. You're anxious. You walk in the back door, husband or wife, somebody says something, you snap and an explosion occurs. And everybody, well, where in the world did that come from? Satan comes when you're upset. So stop getting upset. (laughs) I don't know know what else to tell you. Just don't be upset. Number four, Satan will twist scripture. And my Lord, I have seen that in recent days by men I never would have expected it from. But I want to tell you something. I'm going to say something to y'all. I don't know if I'll say this in the next service, but I'll say it to you. So y'all get special stuff in this service here. I have watched older pastors so want to be embraced by younger pastors that they act like fools. You're never going to see me driving a Corvette, unless you give it to me. Uh, I'm never going to wear my shirt unbuttoned down to here. I'm not going to go get a um, toupee. And I wear a suit. It's my age. Hey, I'm me. And I like younger men, but I'm not going to act like a fool to get somebody young to follow me. Okay. All right. Well, I said it. Number five, Satan feeds on the pain. Listen to this. Satan feeds on the pain of the believer. It's almost vampirish, if there's such a word to where he gets a drop of pain and it seems to give him new life. You do realize that Satan's purpose is to destroy your life, Christian. And the question, what a way to end a sermon. I, I can't end like that. And here this whole thing is God has abandoned us. He's left us. He's gone. What are we going to do? We'll go our own way. We'll follow other gods. But the fact of the matter is that, listen to verse 7. I'll just get into the verse. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once. Go down at once for your people. Let me just stop there. God had not taken his eye off of them the first second. God hadn't taken his eyes off of you. You may feel abandoned. You may feel left. You may feel alone. But let me promise you at the end of a, at the end of a sermon that is not all that uplifting, let me promise you, look up and you'll see the presence of God. Let's stand. It's always a mystery to me how God would use a sermon. But I believe he does. But someone here this morning, you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And yet, the Spirit of God right now is speaking to your heart. There's a decision that you need to make. 
No one can make it for you. You're the only one who can make that decision. And that decision is to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to come to him, to come to the one who loves you, who died for you, who gave his life on Calvary for you, who calls you, even in this moment, by his spirit, come to me. All ye who are weary and are heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest. I'm the God who will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will be with you to the end of the age. That's through eternity. Come to the Jesus that has given everything for you. If you're here this morning and you need to make that decision, come out, step out, walk this out. Come right here to me and I'll be glad to pray with you. Others of you this morning have no idea where you are. Maybe you need to join this church. I invite you to come and be a part of this fellowship. I'll do this week in and week out. I'll open God's word and I'll preach it. We'll love on you. We'll be family to you. We don't want there to be a wedge driven into our fellowship. We want it to be as sweet as it is right now. And so you come and say, I bring myself, I bring my family to be a part of this church. Others of you may need to come to the altar. These kneeling benches here that they call to us all through the invitation, come, come before the Lord and pray. Father, I just pray that in these moments that your voice would be heard above every other voice and that the desire of our heart would be to honor you with our response. And I pray that in Jesus' name. You come right now in this invitation time. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.